Creativity isn't the first word I hear most leaders wanting to get better at. However, most of us can reap huge benefits by being more creative. On today's show, why we should care about creativity and how to get better at it. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 147. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly coaching show to help us all be better leaders through improved communication, human relations, and personal leadership. I'm so glad to have you back this week. Welcome to the show that really focuses on helping you to become more effective in your people skills, all the things that you want to be doing that will help you to be more effective at producing results for your organization, producing results for others in their careers, and also tapping into your own personal excellence. And that's why I have invited today's guest to join us. Uh, I'm so pleased to welcome Todd Henry to the show today. Todd is the author of the book, The Accidental Creative. How to Be Brilliant at a Moment's Notice. And I recently read this book and really found so much of what Todd had included up here to be something of value for so many of us who are part of the Coaching for Leaders community. And uh, Todd just has a wonderful practical way of looking at creativity. And I, I know that this is a word that for a lot of us um, and me included, when we hear the word creativity, we think, oh, you know, that's um, that's something people do when they're painting or making music. Uh, but there is so much room and space and importance of creativity in the organizational world. And so, Todd, I am so uh, glad to have you on the show. Welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Well, Dave, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And uh, and and so, I maybe we should start by looking at this word creative and and you you tackle this in the book uh, in a big way which i love uh which is you know a lot of us have obstacles kind of with this word of of creative and creativity and we make some assumptions about it what are the things that you find that when you use this word i mean this is you've built your business and your your life around this word what are some of the assumptions that people make well, I think one of the problems that uh, exists is that when we hear the word creative, like you mentioned in the intro, I think we tend to think of art. So we think of being creative as drawing or writing or some of these things that maybe some of us don't have the technical proficiency to do uh, well. But in truth, creativity at the heart of it is problem solving. It's taking things that don't seem like they belong together and forging them into something new so that they solve a problem, a very real problem that's in front of us. And so a designer does that. Certainly a designer has a problem and they use their skills to forge a solution through their their existing skill set, which is design. A writer does the same thing, but so does an entrepreneur. So there's a marketing manager. So there's the leader of an organization. They have a problem and they have to take the disparate stimuli or bits of of, uh, usable data or, or resources in their environment and weave them together to form a solution. And at the heart of it, that is creativity. And so when we are accountable for turning our thoughts into value, for being a creative, for solving problems every day, 
we have to think about our life a little bit differently than we would if we were just doing repeatable uh, mechanical types of things where we don't really have to, to, um, to, to confront uncertainty on a daily basis. And there are also some special, I guess, uh, forces that can come against us or some unique dynamics that we have to learn to deal with as creatives, uh, which is, again, what I call any of these solve problems, or as leaders in an organization. And if we're not aware of them or we're not um, uh, structuring our life and our organization to deal with them, then they can very easily rob us of our ability to fully engage. Well, that that is one of the reasons that I really was so excited to talk to you because you know, you've described the situation that so many of us and part of this community, I think, run into on a on a daily basis, um, which is the the kinds of people who are listening to the show are are generally people who are having to solve problems um, yes. and are not necessarily doing things exactly the same way on each day. They're they're leading teams. They're trying to think of new ways to do stuff, and and they're being challenged by their organizations to okay. Um, you know, the, the cliche business term is think outside the box. I mean, how many times right. have we heard that? And yet, um, there's some truth behind that term of, you know, w- our organizations are always pushing us to do new things and to think in a way that's going to help our organization be more competitive. And uh, I really like that you've positioned creativity as as a skill that's, that's learnable. Um, and I was wondering if you could, could say a little bit about that. How can we learn how to be more creative and to be a better problem solver? Well, I would say, Dave, first of all, I would say that we are all creative. We all have this innate capacity to solve problems uh, and, to, and to, to weave together seemingly disconnected things into a meaningful solution. I mean, we're being creative right now. We're improvising as we're communicating. You know? So this, this in and sure. of itself is a creative act. Um, now, some people have more of a natural aptitude for making those loose connections, for being able to to venture out into those places where there's a kind of a tenuous uh, connective tissue between two ideas, but they're able to somehow see the connection and bring it back into the realm of possibility as we're trying to solve the problem. And and so there are people who are just naturally gifted in that way um, to, to go out into those places. But we can, on an individual level, train ourselves to be willing to deal with that discomfort and to push out into those uncomfortable places um, on a regular basis. But but it requires discipline. And the reason it requires discipline is because we are creatures of habit and creatures of comfort. And so when mm-hmm. we're under pressure, or as I like to call it, when we're in the create on demand world, where we have to not only deal with this mystical elusive force called creativity that for many of us sits somewhere between prayer and the U.S. tax code on the ambiguity scale, right? Not only are we accountable (laughs) for that, but we're also accountable for delivering results on time, on budget in order to keep our job. Thank you very much. And so there's a unique kind of pressure that comes with that. So we have to have disciplines that force us to think about our problems in different ways that push us outside of our comfort zone um, and, and, and cause us to, to not just settle for the first answer, not just settle for the obvious solution, which is what we tend to do when we're under pressure. And as I was looking at the lives of creatives and organizations that seem to get this right, they seem to be able to do it effectively and sustainably, uh, unlike so many of the organizations that I had seen and experienced and, and, um, and uh, unfortunately seen the ill effects you know, of, of their practices, these teams seem to be what I call prolific, meaning they're doing a lot of work, brilliant, meaning they're doing good work, but also healthy, meaning they'd figured out how to do it sustainably um, and, and do it in a way that that wasn't going to put them through these endless cycles of crash and burn and refresh and crash and burn and refresh. 
And so um, uh, there were kind of five general buckets or five areas where I found that they tended to have practices that sustain them. The first element is focus. And focus is about how we define the edges of our work. You know, many of us, especially people who aren't the prototypical creative, they're not the designer, the writer, they're not working in that world. A lot of times there's a tendency for us to be carried along by our work especially long arc project work. And we kind of move from day to day. We don't really have clear milestones. We may have projects that we're doing, but we don't really have a clear definition of the problem we're trying to solve. And what I discovered in the course of my research is that highly functioning, highly effective, productive, or as I call them, prolific, brilliant, and healthy creatives tended to have an extra propensity uh, or, or an extra ability to define their work very well, meaning they had a, a clear sense of the outcome they were committed to, not just the project or the task that they were trying to do. And so one of the things that, that I prescribed in the book, The Accidental Creative, was to commit to challenges, define your work by establishing challenges, uh, which challenges are very, very specific, concrete problem statements, problems you're trying to solve, outcomes that you're committed to, not just projects you're trying to do. Because when you do that, it completely reframes the way that you approach your work. When you commit to solving problems rather than doing tasks or executing projects, you think about your project in a more creative way and you bring the full resources of your problem-solving creative mind to the, the, the project at hand rather than um, simply allowing your work to carry you along by sheer inertia. Mm. And so that's really, that's kind of the first area is, is focus and making sure that you're effectively defining, but also dedicating time to think about those problems. And one of the problems that, that or one of the challenges that we have always in the course of doing work and trying to focus today is this little thing I like to call the ping. Um, and the ping is this perpetual pinprick in my gut, Dave, that says, uh, you should go check your email right now, right? Or you should go check your Twitter feed right now. And it's this gnawing sense that something out there might be more important than what's in front of me. And people who have a, a, an ability to focus effectively are people who are A, they're really good at taming the ping. They're really good at setting aside time for what uh, uh, what has been called by Cal Newport deep work. So they set aside time to do the deep, deep work, focus on those problems and delve into those problems without the constant distraction of the ping. So mm. focus is the first place that we have to be really effective if we want to be, as I call it, prolific, brilliant, and healthy I, in I, life and in work. I think I know exactly what you mean. Um, and just so um, we can really put legs on it and, and, and see it, what would be an example of a way that someone would take maybe something that's just, they've always done it one way, and reframe it? What's an example of a way you've seen someone do that that's really gotten them to be able to focus on that problem? Yeah. So for example, in the book, I, I give the example of building a website because a lot of the people that I work with um, are you know, in agencies and other places like that. Um, you know, So th you can easily fall into a habit or a pattern as you're thinking about building a website of, okay, what are the tech requirements? Um, what are the tasks that we have to do in order to build this? And not to think about what is the ultimate outcome? What is the ultimate end user experience? What are we really trying to accomplish here? What is the outcome that we're committed to? Is a website even the right way to do it, right? Is that even, and, and you know, I hear this all the time from, uh, I was working with a marketing firm recently and they said, you know, people just come to us and ask us for flyers. And instead we have stopped 
doing stopped uh, just accepting that request and we started asking, what are you trying to achieve? Let's talk about the outcome because mm. you think that's what you want, but maybe you want something entirely different. Um, and when we start asking, when we start framing up work as problem statements rather than as projects, it completely changes the way that we approach the work itself. And sometimes what we've always done um, we may realize is actually not the most effective way to get the outcome that we're trying to achieve. And it is so easy to do it the way it's always been done. And uh, in, in organizations, especially larger organizations, are notorious for deciding to do something and then sending down through the chain of the command, build a website, make a flyer, put on a conference, do this. And a lot of times the people involved don't even necessarily know the decision, the strategy, the overall outcome that that's right. That the organization is actually trying to achieve. That's right. And there's a break between the why and the what in that case, right? Which is what I call dissonance in the book. This break between why we say we're doing something and what we're actually being tasked with doing. And when that happens, it's hard to bring yourself to what you do. It's hard to keep a team aligned and focused around the important work that they're being tasked with. The ping resonated with me a lot when I read the book too, because I I have so been there, Todd, and I think I think almost all of us have been, if if not regularly, at least occasionally, where you have those days where you've been on email or you know you go check Facebook or whatever, and it's two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon. Like I've gotten nothing done today, even though you had the best of intentions. Um, what is it that you found that's worked for you to minimize that ping and to be able to focus on the things that are most important for your work on a given day? Well, you know, the funny thing is that we have complete control of that situation, that circumstance, you know, um, that's what's so maddening about the ping is that it is, uh, it is a malady that we inflict upon ourselves in so many ways. I mean, nobody has set the expectation that you will reply to an email within five minutes or that you will even be aware of an email within five minutes of it, you know, it's showing up in your inbox and we inflict that malady upon ourselves. And so the only solution I have discovered is setting aside, blocking off time and refusing to allow myself to be distracted. Uh, you know, I used to lock myself in my office and close the blinds and I would tell my assistant uh, for the next hour and a half, I am completely unreachable. I'm not even here. I don't care who comes. I am not here. I, I'm not reachable, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The president could walk up and say, there's a national security crisis or whatever it is, right? Um, and it doesn't matter because I'm, I'm not here. And, and I've found that that's the only way to really get around to doing the deep work is we have to be grownups. <laughs> you know, we have to put on our big boy pants and we have to say, hey, I'm going to commit myself to this, not because it's easy, not because I like it, but because it's the best way for me to get about the work that I ultimately am accountable for. You're not being paid for putting in hours. You're not being paid for sitting in meetings. You're not being paid for replying to emails quickly. You're being paid for the value that you contribute to the organization. Mm -hmm. And if you're not dedicating time to ensure that you're delivering disproportionate value to the organization, then you're not, I mean, you're, you're skating on thin ice. You're skating on, uh, you're, you know, it's, it's tenuous territory for you. Um, and, and if that's what you're being paid for and being rewarded for, then why are you not dedicating focused, deep time to engage in that kind of behavior? You know, this is a perfect transition to looking at one of the other five buckets here, which is ours, because in mm. so many organizations, and I think even people who have ultimate control over their schedule, who you know maybe are CEO or run their own small business, 
this hours thing is something that's very much ingrained in a lot of us and how we work and how many hours we put in. And right. if we put in more hours that we've worked harder, that we're getting better results. And you really, um, you really talk about this a lot in the book um, of how you know we should probably rethink some, reframe some of our thinking on this. And so, where do we have it wrong with hours, and what are what's would maybe a different or better way to think about it? Well, here's the challenge. The challenge is, I think, in many ways that organization. First of all, organizations measure against hours. I think that's a struggle for many people. Is that um, you know we we measure the pr productivity of the organization by how many hours we put against something in some cases, uh, which is a challenge. But I think I would say in really most, in down, most cases, actually, we tend I'm to sorry? do that. We do that in most cases, it seems like in most organizations. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think that the place we really fall down is that we sacrifice long-term effectiveness on the altar of short-term efficiency. And so when we think about our time, we think mostly about efficiency, not about effectiveness. Uh, we, we there's no guaranteed result on the other end of um, some of the activities that we have to do in order to conjure up creative ideas in order to put us in a place where we're actually generating value. Like I mentioned, you know, closing the door, blocking ourselves off from the world, coming up with ideas, thinking deeply about the problems we're trying to solve. There's no guaranteed result on the other side of that. Whereas I could sit down to my at my computer and I could respond to 20 emails and I feel good. I, I get that immediate sense that I've done something productive. I get that surge of, of uh, chemicals in my brain that tells me, Oh, I've, I've checked something off of my list and that's great. Um, it's good to feel that way. But if you do that enough times in a row, you're going to become decreasingly effective over time because you're not getting around to the real stuff. And so we would rather in many cases, Dave, um, do the things that make us feel that surge of productivity, whether that's sitting in meetings, making phone calls, replying to emails, all of which we have to do as a function of our job. I'm not discounting that, but we would rather gravitate toward those things because they feel really good in the moment because we feel very efficient and then expect great ideas to happen in the cracks and crevices of those things. And that's just not the way that life and creativity works. If something is important, it takes time and we have to dedicate time against it. And we have to make priority decisions, meaning that we have to block off time for effective activity, not just efficient activity. The seeds of tomorrow's brilliance are planted in the soil of today's activity. So mm -hmm. how we structure our life today is what yields our insights tomorrow. It's what yields our great work tomorrow. So things like, are you developing your skills? Are you sharpening your mind? Are you taking time to study? Are you taking time to write and think deeply about the problems you're trying to solve? Are you taking time to try, to try to generate new ideas and new avenues of thought about the problems you're trying to solve? I mean, most people would say ideas are important, but if you really ask them, most people would say they really didn't have any dedicated thought time this week for their their. Uh, most important work. And I forget who it was recently. Um, I, I, some world-renowned philosopher from the the turn of the the twentieth century, and I can't remember who it was, but he said, um, you know, most people never think. Most people never set aside time to think in their life. And I have become a a world-renowned 
um, figure by thinking three hours a week or something like that. It was some, some <laughs> quote like that. And I thought that awesome. is actually really profound because it's yeah. true. Most of the people I know do not have dedicated time to thinking about the important issues in their life. They just expect insights and aha moments to happen in the cracks and crevices. But the people I know who dedicate time to think and process, these are the people who are actually moving the needle in their organization because they have a discipline, not just about doing the work. We're great at getting around to the work, but a discipline around thinking, a discipline around allowing ideas to marinate and mm. and uh, to to become uh, mature in the course of their work. It, uh, and so, so we have to we have to do that. We can't allow our efficiency addiction to cause us to sacrifice long term effectiveness. It's so funny you mentioned this because we've we've talked on the show before that it. it especially in corporate America, the assumption is, is if you're just sitting around thinking that you're not doing work. And right. um, and so work has become this, you have to be on the phone, you have to be responding to email, you have to be sitting in a meeting to be working. And um, and so I, I, I really, uh, I think this is such an obstacle for so many people in so many organizations because someone, you know, you block time for thinking or for um, doing some long-term planning and, and People question that. And so I'm curious, Todd, because you work with a lot of organizations that have kind of like they've bought into this. They've said, okay, we want to we want to develop our skills at being more creative and tapping into this. What do you what do they do that's successful in kind of getting over the hump of being, okay, um, we'll try that. We'll actually dedicate some time to do that and we'll 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 get our the people who are you know leading our organization to start thinking that way. Is there anything you've found that's really been helpful around that? Yeah. So, I mean, change happens in small ways, right? I mean, you don't come in and turn a culture overnight. You don't come in and say, okay, henceforth, these shall be the 20 disciplines that we are going to implement as an organization. It typically starts with a champion saying, hey, guess what? Um, For the foreseeable future, if you want to block off an hour a week to thinking about problems, um, I'm going to give you permission to do that. You can go to a, a coffee shop if you want. You can go out and sit under a tree, whatever it is. The only caveat is once a week, I'm going to check in with you and ask you what happened during that time. Hmm. But that's the only caveat. You know, what idea, did you have any ideas? What were you thinking? Where did your thoughts go? Um, you know, it's usually something really small like that, especially as it relates to the hours thing. Um, for individuals who don't feel that freedom organizationally, a lot of times it comes down to one day. I normally leave for work, let's say around eight o'clock in the morning. One day a week, I'm going to leave at seven and I'm going to go to a coffee shop or I'm going to go someplace or I'm going to go to the office. I'm going to sit in my workspace for an hour before anybody else shows up and I'm going to dedicate. Not because my my company is formally endorsing that, but because if it's important, it needs to happen. And you know, I think that's the thing sometimes that frustrates me the most when I come into organizations I and mean, I've worked with really large organizations and talked to a lot of people at all levels of organizations from, you know, CEO all the way down to, um, to, to new hire. And the, the one thing that frustrates, frustrates me the most, Dave, is when I hear people say, well, they won't let me, well, they won't let me. Um, and this kind of victim mindset, you know, I think can become really problematic in the lives of creatives. And one of the the key messages that I want people to understand and embrace is your creative health, your creative rhythm, your engagement is your responsibility, not your organization's responsibility, not your manager's responsibility, not your mom's responsibility, right? It's your responsibility. Now, there are some very unhealthy, dysfunctional organizations out there, and I get that. And if if your organization is one of those, then I think you need to make a choice. Am I going to stay or am I going to go? But even that is your decision you know, at the end of the day. And so 
I, th- I think one of the things that we have to recognize is that if it's important, if it's important to you, to your work, to your career, to the people that you're ultimately serving through your work, then you you need to take ownership of it and you need to make it happen. And if that means coming in a little bit early, if it means leaving a little later, if it means trying to find a way to have difficult conversations in the course of my work so that I can carve out time for things like relationships, so I can carve out times for to, to expose myself to stimuli that are going to help me in my work, then you need to make it happen um, if you want to be effective. And, you know, it, it's it's funny you mentioned that about, you know, dysfunctional organizations and, and you and I have both run into a lot of them in our careers. And sure. even in those organizations, you will find there's always that person or a couple of people who are coming up with great ideas, who are making things happen, who are connecting with customers. And uh, and those are the people who have made that investment, who have made the choice to say, hey, you know, in spite of this culture, in spite of this organization, that I am going to make the investment in myself and I'm going to make that choice to to spend the time that is necessary to put in, whether on thinking or anything else. And so uh, I think that's it's a good challenge for all of us to, you know, regardless of what our, organ- our organization is at, we can all do something as an individual to move toward that. And I, I love this suggestion too about giving, you know, uh, charging people with an hour a week to go and you know do some thinking and then come back and and to, to dialogue about it. That's that's awesome. There's one there's one organization that I work with that that um, I, I that had um, generated the idea. There's a brilliant idea of what they called no fly zone time, which was basically eleven to one every day. If you had some kind of request some kind of email, phone call, something that you needed from someone, and it could wait until after one o'clock without being deadly painful to everybody around you, then you were under organizational mandate to hold on to that until after one o'clock. So that everybody had between 11 o'clock and one o'clock every, every day, 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. to focus, to do their deep work, you know, to design, to write, to, to strategize, whatever it was, they knew they weren't going to be interrupted. They weren't, wouldn't be interrupted for two hours. Now, obviously client facing people and others who had to be on call, you know, it didn't apply to them necessarily, but, but it, you know, I thought, what a brilliant idea, what a brilliant concept, because just knowing that you have two hours and it's over lunch. So if you want to grab lunch and eat at your desk or whatever, just knowing you have that two hours is like gold in many organizations where interruption is the norm, not, not the anomaly. It's the norm. I know that every 10 minutes I'm going to be interrupted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, um, this is a good transition to talk about stimuli too. Um, you know, one mm-hmm. of the things that I, I, I love about the book is that you really um, encourage people and even challenge the reader to look at what we're taking in and what we're putting in our environment as far as what's stimulating us. And, I, and I'm also curious to maybe look a little bit about what you talk about in the book with note-taking too, because I've, I've found that to be really powerful. And I think that that's something that would be helpful to people. But from a from a high-level perspective, why is stimulus and what we're allowing into our brains and our environment so important as far as our creative work? Well, it's important because the the stimuli in your environment become the raw father for your creative process. So we talked earlier about venturing out into those places where tenuous connections reside between different bits of data in your environment and the problem you're trying to solve. Well, those the, the quality of your stimuli, the kinds of things you're, uh, you're experiencing and you're, you're exposing yourself to, and, and the kinds of things that you're sharp, using to sharpen your mind and, and shift your perspective and help you think systemically inform 
your creative process in deep and profound ways. So if you are engaging in you know, intellectual snack food all day. So you're surfing YouTube and you're you know, surfing the news sites or whatever, but you're never really taking time to experience things that move you, that shift your perspective, that challenge you to have to think deeply about issues or to, to look at a problem in new ways, then you're, what you reap is what you're going to sow. You know, you're not going to have the same well of resources to draw from as somebody who is building time into their life to expose themselves to things that are challenging them to see the world in new ways, forcing them to have to venture outside of their comfort zone, outside of the rails they've normally set for themselves. And as Stephen Sample from USC calls it, to commune with great minds, which I, I love that phrase. Um, if you want to think deep thoughts, you should immerse yourself in the thoughts of deep people. And uh, the one of the best ways to do that is to regularly read, have study time, dedicate yourself to immersing yourself in the thoughts of others, you know, the great thinkers of history, um, or to to expose yourself to inspiring film or documentaries or um, works of art that uh, provide you with metaphors and um, and analogies that you can then borrow and use in the work that you're doing. You know, the next great idea for your work is probably not going to come from staring harder at the problem. It's going to come from all of these things that are out there in your environment that may seem irrelevant now until you begin trying to force an application to the problem that you're looking at. And when you do that, all of a sudden it opened up, opens up new avenues of thought. Um, you, you realize maybe you've been carrying assumptions that you didn't know even existed five minutes before. And suddenly this external piece of stimuli illuminates a path that you previously didn't see because you were just staring myopically at the problem. So that's why stimuli is so important. It's important to have things to jog us out of our assumptive and fossilized modes of, of thought. And and I like that you really looked at that pretty broadly in the book too and 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 challenged people to and I'm I'm so guilty of this, Todd, like, you know, picking up business books all the time, you know, real practical nonfiction business books. And you really challenge people like, yeah, do that, but but also look at like classical literature and like the great, you know, the great writers over the, you know, over history. And I know I'm not anywhere close to doing that as well as I'd like to. And 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 you make the case that by really pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone and seeing things in totally different ways, that it it really provides the the, the foundation for some of those great ideas and to think differently about something you would have never thought about that way before otherwise. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, it is a learned skill. That's the thing that, that when we talk about creativity being a learned skill, pushing yourself beyond those latent inhibitions that you might feel um, learning to listen to your intuition, learning to follow those little intuitive hunches that come up as you're looking at something you think, well, that might be relevant to the problem I'm trying to solve. But your sensor quickly jumps in and says, no, 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 that's not relevant. You should just, you know, plow ahead, just focus on what's in front of you. Um, you know, the people who tend to be able to go out into those places and think a little bit differently about the problem and look at it from a different perspective are the people who get beyond that voice of the sensor and they're able to go out and explore their, in, in a very curious manner, their environment, and then ask questions about how what they see out there might apply to the work in front of them. And we've seen over and over and over again throughout history, we've seen innovations that have occurred, not because somebody, um, you know, I mean, hard work is important, but but not just because somebody was staring at a problem, but because they were engaging in activity that was outside of the norm, and they happened to be 
able to then apply those insights and those learnings to the problem in front of them. And it, it yielded a, a new avenue of exploration. And then you talk about capturing it too through note-taking. Um, and, right. you know, I've really struggled with this over the years. I, I always felt like I had some good ideas on things when I'd be exposed to new things. And then inevitably, 12 hours later, I couldn't remember what it was that sure. I, had, you know, I had this brilliant idea of what I was going to write about or, or a problem. And um, I've kind of stumbled on this by accident. And when I read it in your book, I was like, oh, that's what I've been doing is is really disciplining myself over the last year or so of when I had an idea to get it on somewhere, you know, on, on paper to digitally capture it. Um, and in fact, that's how this whole platform has evolved. You know, the writing and podcasts and all that is just by starting to capture information as it comes in on a daily basis. And um, right. and, I, and I'm I'm curious for those who may not have done that yet, how would you suggest people get started with that? What What's something simple that and just about all of us could do that would start to capture some of the things that we're thinking? Well, I'll tell you what, what I do because I've actually greatly simplified my process. You mm. know, a lot of people take notes on their phone because we have our phone with us everywhere. They use Evernote or, you know, the notes app in their phone or whatever. Yep. Um, I, personally, I find that that's not helpful for me. I use Evernote for different things. I use it for research and other things, but I've find that for quick and dirty note taking index cards are absolutely the best thing in the world. And so I have a little um, pocket index card holder that was actually given to me by the CEO of the Ottawa Convention Center in Ottawa, Canada, because I was giving a, a speech there and he came up af afterward. And he said, Hey, I, I love your, your index cards. You have folded over there in your pocket. Let me show you what I've been using for you know, many years, uh, I've got this little system I've right here and it's got a little place for an index card and you can put more index cards in the pocket and it's kind of like a little index card wallet. Um, and he said, and I would like to give this to you. I said, you're giving me your index card wallet? I was, I was like, that's so Canadian for you to come up to me and just give me your index card wallet, right? That's so awesome. That's awesome. But I've been using that now for, I guess, the past year plus. Um, but for the last several years, I've been using just, you know, just index cards and I carry them in my pocket with a little pen. And every time I have an idea, any idea, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it seems relevant. Um, if it's a little intuitive hunch I have, I write it down. And then at the end of the day, I throw all those index cards in my inbox. Or when I get back to my office, I throw them in my inbox and then I go through them on a regular basis and I look at them. And sometimes when I see an idea, I think, okay, that really was just a bad burrito. That was a terrible, terrible idea. That's never going to be useful. And I know it's not going to be useful. There are some that I think, you know, I don't see the relevance of that, but that actually is a pretty good idea. And there are some that are immediately applicable to the work that I'm doing. And so then I, what I'll do is I'll take those and put them in, you know, if it's immediately applicable, it'll go in my, on my to-do list. It'll go in, um, my, you know, my, my to-do app. If it's um, something that's relevant, it'll go like on the back burner. Um, if it's not immediately relevant, but it's relevant in some way, it'll go on the back burner in some way, or it'll go in my notebook or it'll go on my whiteboard or something where I can see it on a regular basis. But the thing is, as you know, Dave, often if you don't record those ideas, they're gone. I mean, they are just completely gone. Yeah. And six months later, you'll hear something and and you'll think, well, I had that idea six months ago. Why, yeah. why didn't I act on that? You know, because it was I would have been so far ahead of the curve if I had acted on it at the time. Ideas are nothing without action. You have to act on your ideas. And the first step to acting on them is writing them down. It doesn't matter if it seems completely irrelevant in the moment. Write everything down. Write every idea down. Index cards are really, really cheap. I don't, you know, they're really cheap. They're ubiquitous. They're easy. So write everything down. Keep it, um, you know, in a place where you're going to see it on a regular basis. And then 
Um, as you're going through your projects, one of the things that I'm doing with the book that I'm writing right now is I'm going back through all of my old index cards and just looking to see if there are any ideas there that apply to the book that I'm currently writing. Any mm. thoughts I had, interviews I had, any interactions I had that might be relevant to what I'm working on right now. Um, because that's the other great thing about index cards is they're there forever, you know, whereas on the, if you keep them keep notes digitally, you know, they kind of disappear into cyberspace and you never see them again. Yeah. Um, unless you intentionally search for something, it's kind of hard to find what you're looking for sometimes. So I, I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, some of the biggest regrets I have on a particular day is I don't write down more. Um, that's, mm. that's what I find myself struggling with now. And, uh, it, when I'm writing a lot, it is, it is good stuff. Uh, and w- like you said, whether you use it or not, it's, uh, it, it really gets you thinking on starting to take action, which uh, yes, w- which leads me to my last question. You know, you've done, you've become pretty well known for this work, Todd. I mean, you've you've got a really successful podcast. You've had a couple of great successful books. I mean, you've been you've you are really the expert as far as creativity. Um, and I I'm curious, you know, as you've done all this research, written the books, um, consulted organizations. What's been the biggest change for you personally and how you've approached your own creative process in bringing value to your life? Oh boy, that is it. What a fantastic question. Um, okay. So I think that the thing that I have learned the most is, is the importance of seasonal rhythm. Um, that rhythm is important and it's important to have ritual, but it's also important to allow yourself to change those rhythms from season to season. And I think that was something that's been an evolving understanding for me, um, over, over the course of time. You know, I have a book writing rhythm that I get into. Um, I have a, okay, I'm going to be traveling to 22 cities this month rhythm. Um, you know, I, so I have different rhythms and different levels of expectation of myself, depending on what the work demands on me demands of me on, on a month by month basis. And, and even frankly, what my family demands of me, um, you know, what, what's going on there. And I think for, for a long time, Dave, I sort of had this structure and this rhythm that I followed and that the, you know, the, the business followed and that we kind of did regardless of external stimuli thinking that, well, Hey, we're going to plow ahead. And I think what I've come to learn is that there's a time and a season for everything. And so there are times when focus becomes really, really important. And there are times when relationships or stimuli are more important. There's a time when energy management becomes the primary concern. Like for example, when I'm traveling, um, it's a great example. When I'm traveling, I think in May I did, I don't know how many, um, talks for how many conferences and how many different cities, but it was, insane. I was gone pretty much the, the entire month of May. And you know, there was a time when I would say, Hey, it, I, I get up, I do my thing in the morning. I, I follow my rhythm in the hotel room. I, I do my work on the plane. I go to bed exhausted. I get up the next day. I go give my time, you know, and I've come to realize that during those times I have to guard myself so that I can deliver the value that I'm being asked to deliver. Um, And all of us have to do that. There are things that you are primarily being tasked with delivering to your organization. And your job is to structure your life and your work and your interactions and your stimuli and your energy level so that you are able to bring that value that you uniquely are capable of bringing that you are being tasked with bringing to the organization and bring it consistently. So what does that require of you during this season? That's the question that I really, I think I've been asking more and more. And so when I'm writing a book, I need more sleep and I know that. 
because the, the rest of my work doesn't change just because I'm writing a book. I still have other things I have to do, mm. but it's like la- it's layered on top of that. Um, and so I need to, to get more sleep because I need better retention during that time. And I need more energy. I need to be able to think more deeply about issues. And when I'm tired, I don't think as deeply. And so, you know, there, there are just different things that I've come to learn are required of me during different times. And there are times I can get by with less sleep, you know, when I'm on the go. And there are times when I'm going from city to city to city where I might get four hours of sleep, you know, a night for several nights in a row. And that's just kind of the way it is because that's what's demanded of me. And I can't say, oh, no, (laughs) not me. I can't do that. Well, no, I'm sorry. You traveled from the West Coast to the East Coast. That's going to be the penalty for for West to East (laughs) travel is you're going to get four hours of sleep tonight, you know. Um, But that's that's kind of the way it is. And so, yeah, I, I would say my biggest encouragement based on that is you have to know yourself. You have to understand the demands of your work and you have to really deeply understand the most important value that you're being tasked with delivering. And then you have to structure your life and your work and your rhythms around delivering that value consistently. And if you do that, then you will find yourself being um, disproportionately productive compared to your peers. Todd Henry is the author of The Accidental Creative, How to Be Brilliant at a Moment's Notice. And he also has a new book out called Die Empty, Unleash Your Best Work Every Day, which we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, but I'm going to be checking out as well. Todd, thank you so much for your time, and, uh, and thanks for bringing a little creativity into our world today. Great. Thanks, Dave. Todd and I just scratched the surface of what's in his book. There's five key things he focuses on to help leaders and really everyone to be more creative. Uh, And we did talk about several of them. So I'm curious, what's one thing you heard from this conversation that you could do this week to be more creative? And if you'd like to join the conversation on that question, I hope you'll hop online to the discussion for this episode. And that is at coachingforleaders.com slash 147. And at the very bottom of the page there, you'll see a place you can join the conversation. And as always, love getting comments, questions, feedback for this show or future episodes. And you can always submit that at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Two quick community notes before I let you go this week. First of all, a huge thank you for those of you who took five minutes this week to participate in the Coaching for Leaders first ever listener survey. A whole slew of people jumped online this week to do that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time to give some feedback about the show. Uh, For those who missed it last week, it is a very quick survey. It'll take you less than five minutes. Uh, My hope is to learn a little bit more about you, your experience, to get some feedback from you on what you think of this show and how it can get better and things maybe you don't like, and also to get some feedback from you on future products and services that I'm planning to offer in the not-too-distant future. And so um, it'll take you less than five minutes. If you haven't already done so, go to coachingforleaders.com slash survey. And as I had promised last week, uh, once we compile all the results here, uh, probably within the next uh, week or so, uh, we will uh, take a look over everything. Uh, Bonnie's uh, agreed to help me out and process them as well. And then I will come back to you with 
uh, what we learned from the survey and also what we plan to do differently. And some of the comments I've already started looking through, and there is some wonderful feedback on things to uh, that we'll do to, uh, I can imagine, do some tweaks here on the show. So I would love your voice as well, too, though. So if you have not already participated, again, coachingforleaders.com slash survey. And if you get the weekly update every week, watch for a link this week in this week's update uh, about halfway down. Uh, I would love to have your input as well. And then a second note, a somewhat related, is that I am working on some back-end systems for our website to allow the website to do more. And sometime this week, which is the end of June 2014 or early July, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, we are planning to migrate the site to a new platform and a new server. Uh, that should go very smoothly. We've already done the initial stages of it and everything looks good. Uh, however, I wanted to mention it because we are, um, I shouldn't say intentionally, but we are knowingly going to break some old links. Um, one of the links that may break is when you type in the coachingforleaders.com slash episode number. Uh, that may not any longer take you to the podcast episode. We are hoping that's just going to be a temporary issue, um, but it's one of those things that uh, we're just going to move forward on moving over to the new platform because it'll allow us to do a lot more, and it's going to provide a lot of benefits for existing community members in the coming weeks and months that I think will be pretty cool. So a lot more coming on that. But uh, I wanted to mention it because if you go to the website in the next couple of weeks and something breaks or you see a link that's not working, uh, know we're working on that. And if you find something that isn't working, uh, if you don't mind sending me a quick email, let me know. I would love to get a message about that. And uh, and, and actually, that goes for any time. I, I love it when folks send me an email with a correction to a typo or a grammar issue or spelling or something like that. Uh, there's just there's just so much that you know we try to catch everything, but we can't. So if uh, if you ever see anything like that anytime, by all means, feel free to shoot me a quick message. And speaking of uh, sending a message, uh, thank you this week to those of you who continue to join on the weekly updates, uh, who will start getting the weekly updates. And as always, every Wednesday, I will send out the show notes for every episode as well as the weekly article. And so watch for that in your inbox on Wednesdays for those of you. Who already getting the weekly update. And thank you this week to Zachary Thies, Eduardo Crossier, Terry Bricky, Rudy Doku, Per Asberg, uh, Busacorn Buntong Kao, I, Busacorn, I hope I was close on that, Mark Myers, Felicia Ajukuwo, Steve Kane, Ray Boucher, Rohan Bell, Joe Rogers, uh, Joel Rogers, sorry, Joe, uh, Adrian Sams, Ravindra Kurian, Lisa Freeney, Oliver Bluchet or Blush, uh, Lushan Fasal, and Heidi Mershan. Thank you to all of you this week for subscribing to the weekly update. And uh, those of you subscribed received right away the 10 leadership books overview that will help you to get better results from others and two books that I rely on weekly. So that's a downloadable guide and also a short video that will get you starting on your reading and your self-development so you can be personally excellent as a leader. And that is something that uh, you all know I'm a big believer in is starting with ourselves in leadership. So if you'd like to get that as well, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe and that will 
get you on to that and you'll get the show notes every Wednesday and that resource as well and also the weekly article. So lots of good stuff there. Hey, have a fantastic week. Uh, Happy holiday week to those of you here in the States and I look forward to seeing you again for episode 148. Take care.